streets of panhandlers. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So we did a little research prior to to say, okay, well, what? And and to to preface this, because sometimes um, <clears throat> if we're talking about these kind of issues, a lot of times it could be all negative, 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 and and bad things communities have been doing. So it, stay tuned because the end of the show we we will get into Salt Lake City and um, other other kind of positive, hopeful, hopeful solutions uh, to issues around po- um, poverty, homelessness, panhandling. But in this case, we are going to focus on a couple of other places that didn't have a humanizing approach to it. And one of them is Miami. And this just happened recently with Hurricane Irma. They have something in Miami called, well, it's a Florida Act called the Baker Act, which was passed in the early 70s. And what it says is, is essentially that if someone is deemed um, unfit or unwell or unable to care for themselves, um, the authorities, and these are multiple authorities, not just police, but mental health workers, can actually essentially accost and, and then arrest someone for 72 hours without any charge or, or crime being proven, um, quote unquote, for their own safety. And critics of this law have basically said, well, what this law is used for is essentially to criminalize homelessness and criminalize panhandling. And so people were in this particular context, and it's a little bit tricky, we were talking about before the show, because on the one hand, sure, you don't want people in the middle of a hurricane living on the streets without shelter. Mm-hmm. The question, of course, is, well, why are they without shelter? The larger question is, why are they even without shelter? But And we'll, we'll get into that with Salt Lake and how we can perhaps solve that in a more hum, humane way. But... Um, and so they were interviewing a man, and, and this is just a quick sn- snapshot of this. And one older man from this article about um, invoking the Baker Act, one older man was pushing his belongings in an empty cart in a wheelchair in Bayfront Park in Miami and tried to wave them off. These are people trying to basically arrest him um, for being on the streets. I don't want nothing, he said. Um, <clears throat> and then it says insulting a social worker which is kind of interesting that they would deem that as insulting. Um, so you're cool. <laughs> why, is that, why is that insulting? Why is that so insulting? You're, so, so you're cool with dying in the streets, the person asked. Get out of my goddamn face, he responded. What's your name, asked Dr. Mohammed Nassar, a psychologist, psychiatrist who is looking for evidence of mental illness, a necessary factor for a Baker Act attention, although take that with a grain of salt because it's been applied fairly liberally it sounds like in Florida. it doesn't seem like you need to really look for evidence because right. it's just your opinion yeah that's right like what, he's a psychiatrist he can basically like, all right him. yeah so this is the guy says none of your damn business police officer james burnett intervened we're here to help you listen to me you're going to you're you're being very aggressive which is funny here's a man he's just saying leave me alone he's the police are, you're being very aggressive we're trying to help you brent said um it's very dangerous out here you're trying, and then the homeless person says, you're trying to make me go somewhere I don't want to go, he insisted. Finally, the man was handcuffed without a struggle and taken to the Jackson Memorial Hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. So, um, so I, the, another um, city that has um, taken on this issue because of the pressure of business owners has been Atlanta. And actually, Henry, it was so interesting when you found this because um, this is about, so uh, what you found was about the Peachtree Pine Shelter. In Closing Atlanta. down. Mm-hmm. Closing down. And I actually um, stayed at the Peachtree Peach Tree Pine Shelter um, in 2004 for Thanksgiving. Um, I was in AmeriCorps and uh, I wasn't going to travel on those horrible travel days. And so um, I went, I drove down there to visit another AmeriCorps team and uh, we stayed together. We had a lovely Thanksgiving dinner at a soup kitchen, probably like 75 people there. Um, everybody cooked together and everybody sat down and ate together. Um, yeah. And so the Peachtree Pine Shelter was recently closed, actually. And I um, felt kind of surprising to hear that um, because uh, it is it was a huge shelter. Um, 
And there were no conditions of being there. So you did not have to fill out any paperwork. I don't know if you had to be sober. Did you? No, no. It was it was one of the only shelters in Atlanta yeah. that, that you had an open enrollment. As yeah. Far, not enrollment, that's a silly word, but, you know, open. Um, basically, you could go there without proving anything. You didn't have to prove paperwork, nothing. You just could yeah. go. If you needed shelter, you could go there for the night. Yeah. And uh, there were always lots of people outside. And, I mean, my memories are that they were friendly and excited to meet us and mm-hmm. meet some out-of-towners and... Um, but that was closed down because of why? Because of business pressure? Yeah, there's a lot of there. They, they had been going back and forth. The, the the shelter had quote unquote owed money to to the city. They they were back. They're behind on their water bills, of course, because funding for the, for shelters is often problematic. It's difficult to to maintain a shelter of this size, a very large shelter. And so there was issues of of financing for the shelter. And then of course there was a huge pushback from city officials and from the business community who wanted the shelter shut down. Uh, once again, because there was a lot of insinuation that the people that were at the shelter were causing problems with break-ins, et cetera. Even though it sounded like a lot of that stuff wasn't proven, there were rumors and hints and that, and, you know, occasionally I'm sure it probably did happen. But that the question is, do you shut down an entire shelter that housed 500 plus people a night because occasionally someone commits an act of, right. you know, um, property damage, you know, given their situation. It, you know, a lot of people's situation who are desperate, you know, living on the streets, it wouldn't be surprising. You might have a few... Yeah, and I also want to say about the context of that, which is that in 2005, Atlanta came up with a law to criminalize panhandlers, mm-hmm. um, to arrest them um, if they asked anybody for money, at, like, within a certain 15 feet, 50 feet of an ATM or, um, like, a car, like, a meter or whatever. Or a, an entry to any business. And then they, no, in 2012. Oh, right, they made it that, worse. So tw- the, la, la, the law in, 20, in 2005 hadn't, really been enforced but in 2012 they decided to start enforcing it and they essentially said if you are 15 feet outside of the entrance or exit to a business and you are asking for money you can be arrested um there was jail time for it and there was even at some point you could receive a thousand dollar fine which doesn't really work if you think about the context of that. Like, well, where is somebody panhandling you get a thousand dollars? So the, it's a Atlanta has taken. We're bringing these these both Miami and Atlanta up to to point to kind of draconian measures that were taken against people who um, often don't have have a strong of a voice. Um, and even though there was some pushback against uh, closing Peachtree Pine, eventually it was closed. The solution from the city is to um, scatter people throughout the city and put them in apartments. There's a quote from actually a, a business owner who lived next to the um, Peachtree Pine um, shelter who was very much in favor of it being open and being a place for people to go and a place of safety. So she was, and she would actually often, I think she drew pictures of them. She was an artist and she had her own studio by there and she would draw pictures um, or make, I can't remember, sculptures for the people that were living, some of the people living there. And her quote was, um, um, closing Peachtree Pine's doors won't solve the problem of homelessness, she said. We all have these resources and we can't, we can't fix it. She said, we have all these resources and can't fix it. I think by that she means there's plenty of money in Atlanta. Um, so, so how are the homeless people supposed to fix it? You know, meaning the people who have money can't fix it. How can you put the, the initiative on yeah. people that don't have any money to fix it in this culture we live in? And just putting them into an apartment won't solve the problem, basically. Yeah. So we are going to move on to a song, and uh, when we come back, we will have Josh Davis on the line to talk to um, him about his work um, in Brattleboro. So here is I Ain't Got No Home in This World Anymore by Woody Guthrie. Thank you. 
I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. My brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road. A hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. Rich man took my home and drove me from my door, and I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Was a farming on the shares and always I was poor. My crops I lay into the banker's store. My wife. Okay, we're back. You're listening to WVEW 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Um, this is Henry Zucchini. I'm here with Kelly Juno today, and we're having we have a show today about um, panhandling homelessness, both in Brattleboro and in the larger um, community of the United States. So we are here with Josh Davis. He's the director of um, the Groundworks Collaborative in Brattleboro. So thanks for uh, coming on with us tonight, today, Josh. Thanks for having me on, Kelly and Henry. So, Josh, um, we just wanted to start with um, a kind of a broader question. Um, can you talk about what Groundworks Collaborative is and the work that it does in Brattleboro, just to, to give people a little bit of background with that? Yeah, sure. Groundworks Collaborative is the product of a merger a couple of years ago between Morningside Shelter and the Brattleboro Area Drop-In Center. And so we provide services around uh, three basic areas, which is food, shelter, and supportive services. So for food, we have the food shelf on 60 South Main. And then for shelter, we have the year-round shelter, which is in Morningside Commons uh, Condominium Complex. Uh, we have a seasonal overflow shelter for the past 10 years. It's been at the First Baptist Church. This year it's going to be up at uh, formerly Austin School, now Winston Prouty. And then we run the day shelter on 60 South Main. And then for services, we provide case management services for folks that are looking for housing and trying to get into housing, but also for folks that have secured housing. Uh, we continue to provide those services uh, once they're in housing. And then we also provide representative payee services. So some folks that are on uh, Social Security benefits uh, need someone to assist them in taking care of their financial management or else they could potentially lose their benefits. So we provide that service. Okay, great. Kind of us in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, so we just talked a little bit about the flyer that was proposed um, to the select board about yeah. panhandling, and that was um, voted down on Tuesday. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the history of that flyer and the kind of different camps for and against it. Yeah, um, I take kind of a long view of this. This flyer is a product of conversation that I think has gone on for at least a couple years that I've been a part of. I went to a DBA meeting a little over two years ago right at the uh, 
tail, like the beginning of the merger, beginning of Groundworks Collaborative. And a thing that came up there was panhandling and um, the downtown merchants then, as they are now. There's uh, a group of them that really aren't happy with what's going on downtown. That conversation didn't lead to much a couple of years ago uh, until this past spring when Michelle Simpson reached out to me and said, hey, and she's part of the Downtown Business Alliance, uh, to myself and to Chief Fitzgerald and said, hey, can we put together an article, um, educational piece around panhandling and different approaches? And so there was uh, an article that we co-authored that appeared in the Brattleboro Commons last spring and then based on that, there was a pretty significant shift in select board members uh, with the election and the addition of Tim and Brandy in particular. And uh, I think Tim brought this issue to the select board in July and said, you know, let's follow up on this article. And in that article, it, it talked about panhandling, but it also talked about potential solutions. One of those that I was really and still am really excited about is uh, jobs program and we see examples of this in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Portland, Maine, to name uh, just a couple models that are out there that are really exciting, I think, to look at. And so I went to that select board meeting with Michelle and with Chief Fitzgerald and, um, you know, talked about a few different ideas. Also, out of this meeting grew the outreach team that Chief Fitzgerald put together, along with a couple other ideas. Uh, following that, the Downtown Business Alliance had a a working group that met and invited myself, Chief, to come in and give updates on how progress was going on these particular initiatives. And in those discussions, uh, I don't know who brought it up or how it got brought up, but it was in that group that they said we should do a flyer. And so some different iterations started to get uh, passed around. And at first it had everybody's logo on it that was sitting around the table, the police, groundworks, uh, Chamber of Commerce. But as we moved through the process, uh, Groundworks and myself, I wasn't comfortable with our logo appearing on the flyer. I felt like it was what was coming out was a bit uh, too harsh and wasn't representative of how we felt the issue needed to be addressed in the community and, and didn't feel comfortable adding our name to it. So we, uh, we pulled our logo off, as did the Chamber of Commerce. And so that Initial iteration went to the select board, um, and I guess there was some back and forth over a couple meetings, and ultimately Peter and the town decided to that they would take a run at a version, uh, and I think they did a couple different iterations, with the culmination being this last meeting that they voted on it, and it was two to two, and so didn't have enough votes to pass. And... Uh... What, from your, could you explain a little bit further why, what your issues with, if you feel comfortable talking about that, what what Groundworks issues were with the language in the flyer, or what what you thought some of the problems with with that with that flyer were? I think it, I think the flyer for us is a, it's really a value statement on how to address, um, well, in this case, panhandling, and it feels divisive to us, and it starts to tap into a frame I, that. I think you guys were talking about, I'm not listening on the radio, but I think I overheard while I was waiting to go on around criminalization of homelessness mm -hmm. and poverty. Yeah. And so the flyer really starts to tap into that frame, and we're not comfortable with that. Okay. We don't feel like though that is a, a reasonable solution. We criminalize you know, asking for money on the street, and there's this strong tie for us between um, 
panhandling itself and and calling the police. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't have enough differentiation for us to feel comfortable that it, it wasn't, you know, targeting panhandling. The language softened over different iterations, but I still feel like there's this strong tie between panhandling and criminalization that I'm really not comfortable with. If you want solutions to issues such as this, I really wholeheartedly believe that they have to be inclusive and not catering to one side or the other, but really not criminalizing poverty. That's not uh, a solution that we can get behind. Yeah, so um, I was at a couple of the select board meetings, so I was kind of listening to a lot of the people's different feelings about the sign. Um, and one argument... And, Kel- yeah, and I would I would just bring up in that vein, sorry to cut you off, Kelly, I ahead. thought you made, and I watched a lot of those, I attended a couple, I have young kids, so that hour is really difficult for me to get to the <laughs> yeah. select board meeting. But I watched uh, your comments, and one of your comments that I really agree with and feel like um, it happens over and over again, which is discrimination against folks that have no, are experiencing homelessness, folks that are experiencing um, poverty uh, are discriminated against. Rather, I, I feel like it's this group that is um, marginalized over and over again, and we don't look at that. If you were to stick another group into a lot of the language and rhetoric that's out there, um, I think that there would be a stronger reaction to it. Yes. And so there's this acceptance of discrimination around totally. uh, folks that are experiencing homelessness. Yeah, and one... so. Um, one argument that I heard say, said, mentioned several times in the select board meeting was that, um, there are enough services in Brattleboro that no one should be in need of what they like basic necessities. And in other Uh words, there's no need for people to ask for money on the streets. And I was wondering if you Uh could speak to this argument. I really don't agree with that, and that's not a, a question that I've been able to address uh, specifically in my time sitting in front of the select board. I am really extremely proud of the services that Groundworks is able to provide, but I also see the reality of the fact that despite our tremendous growth over the last three years, we're, we're scratching the surface. We're not able to provide services for everybody that needs them, and that's we have a number of people that are hungry in this community, and so just given our ability to provide services, we can only have people visit the food shelf once a month. And so there's this disconnect there. Housing, there's a larger systemic issue with the uh, amount of affordable housing that is available. We have a less than 1% vacancy rate, which is extremely tight. A healthy vacancy rate is between 4 and 6%, um, just as a indicator. But also... We have a shortage of housing subsidies. So because we have higher rents, and we all know that Vermont is a, not a cheap place to live, uh, the way that folks that we work with uh, are able to get into and maintain housing is through housing subsidies by and large. And uh, there's just not enough of those to go around. So there's not enough housing to begin with, but even people that have subsidies that are going to pay for upwards of 70% of their rental costs, um, there's not enough to go around that, even folks who have those subsidies are able to get into housing. So, no, I don't feel, and that's just the services that we provide. There's larger services in the community, uh, such as uh, treatment, access to treatment, access to mental health, quality mental health services um, that I feel are really lacking and or are, are challenging for people to access. Yeah, and actually just to um, uh, kind of ask more, follow up on one of the um, things you said about the food shelf. So you said... 
people can visit once a month. So I'm just wondering, like, what does that once a month visit look like? Are they allotted, like, a certain amount of food per person? Like, is that same for, like, families or single people? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, it, it fluctuates. The, the amount of food that folks can take, we're really not onerous, and we're not standing next to people and say, you can only have two of these and three of those. But we just ask uh, people to take what they need to help them get through a week. We, our goal is to supply a week's worth of groceries. And so we really want to help people connect to other services, such as uh, Three Squares Vermont, which is also known as food stamps. And so we want to make sure that people are accessing all the services that are out there and the food shelf being one to help bridge the, the food dollar. And our goal is to provide enough groceries for somebody for uh, and or a family uh, for a, a week out of a month. Yeah, well, just maybe one final kind of, uh, maybe this is a, a larger question around kind of the issue of homelessness and panhandling generally, but we live in an economic system that's largely based um, on exploitation um, and often, and therefore creates a lot of poverty. We have a system that's that's kind of done this for, for as long as America's been a country. Um, so in order to actually eradicate poverty, we need, in some ways, we need a new system of organizing ourselves. But barring that kind of systemic change, what are some of the things that you think, as the director of uh, Groundworks, that that could happen realistically in Brattleboro that would start to address the needs of people living on the streets? And not, I know you talk about what you guys already do, but if you could envision a better world, what are some of the things that you, you think we could do in the immediate future that, that couldn't um, help people living in these conditions? You're right. I, you know, the, the system works really well for some people. It doesn't work really well for everybody. And, you know, the folks that are on the street, the system's not working well for them. So what are some things that we can do? Um, I think we have some models out there that are really exciting, and so it's to continue to fund these models. Uh, Housing First is a really exciting model which says, you know, folks don't need to be sober to maintain housing. Folks don't need to jump through a bunch of hoops and earn, earn housing. Housing is a right. So let's move straight from being on the street into um, units. Let's bring services, but let's make those services voluntary, meet people where they are. So we're going to meet you once a week. You have to meet with us once a week. You have to check in. You have to talk with us. And you have to maintain um, basically what it says in your lease. But otherwise, you don't have to engage in services if you don't want to. And uh, this has proven to be extremely successful, not just in our community of Vermont, but throughout the country. And so I, you know, continuing to ramp those up, that is the, you know, it goes back to housing, the housing subsidy, but also supportive services. And so investing in all of those areas, I think taking that model too and applying it to employment, applying it to opportunities for people to be able to um, make an income and, and contribute. Again, I don't think that solutions that are going to be divisive and pushing people out of an area into another area is going to be uh, effective. We have to figure out ways to create spaces for everybody in our community and really not segregated spaces. How, how can we create um, the, these spaces where you have multiple classes and um, diversity coming together? And, and it's challenging, but there are models that are out there. And one of these ways is through an employment-first approach, which is basically you put your name on a list and you get a job. You know, it's not about the resume. It's not about the interview skills. It's about getting somebody into an employment situation that um, has supports along with the ability to make um, money. And so I would love to see some of that come online as well. Just a couple off the top of my head. 
Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for taking your time, especially with young children. I know you, you must be busy this time of year. It's starting to get cold. Um, uh, so we appreciate you taking your time to talk to us yeah. and um, hear thanks, your thoughts. Josh. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thank you for keeping the conversation going. I really appreciate that. I do think that there were a few um, things that were mentioned. Brandy mentioned one about having uh, continuing this conversation, but just being very... Um, intentional and aware of who is participating in that conversation. And so can we get folks that are actually out on the street asking for money into a conversation with folks that don't want them out there on the street asking for money in a really safe space so that everybody can speak uh, and share their story? Because I think that that is huge, and these conversations largely take on a life of their own, and we forget who they're about and forget to include those people in the conversation. So. We actually uh, I really today. appreciate we, what you're doing. Thanks. We planned today to bring someone. Kelly Kelly was interviewing someone on the street who's currently homeless, and we're going to bring her to the studio today, and we're going to meet her today, but that fell through. Um, but we were going to have her in, in the studio with us, but it unfortunately didn't work out. But we are going to talk about what they talked about, so a little bit later in the show. All right. That's excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks, okay. Josh. Thanks so much. So, All right. Thank you. Okay, have a great day. Later. Bye. You too. Uh, so uh, when we come back, we will talk a little bit about um, – some of the stories, unfortunately told by me, <laughs> of panhandlers on the streets in Brattleboro. Um, but right now, um, this is Death to My Hometown by Bruce Springsteen. Welcome back to Indigo Radio. That was uh, a show that was recorded last year, actually, um, in October, the end of October. Um, Kelly and Henry had discussed the issue of panhandling, which 
um, as it happens to be still a conversation in Brattleboro at the moment, we wanted to replay that show for you all um, to hear Josh from Morningside discuss uh, kind of the conversations that happen around panhandling and homelessness in Brattleboro and how um, there are misconceptions amongst us uh, in the community, talking about the fact maybe that there are enough services for people to uh, get what they need, but in fact, Josh told us that there's already a shortage of housing. We all know that food is becoming more expensive and as is medical care, um, and that there's a lack of mental health services, although we have the retreat right down the street. Um, so just going back to that conversation and talking about the upcoming community event um, that is entitled Opposing the Criminalization of Poverty or the Poor, um, and that will be a community conversation on Wednesday, August 29th, 6.30 p.m. at the Brooks Memorial Library. And this event, it will be in the community meeting room, but this event was really put on um, by people in the community who are concerned about the way in which business owners and their allies are talking about panhandling. Mm, and there has been a community response, a strong community response, which is against um that conversation and has spoken out in support of um, people who are on the street asking for money um, for whatever reason that they might need it for. Um, so just to discuss that a little bit, over the summer we've done a number of shows. One of those shows um, was about the Amazon strikes and the Disney strikes. And so this morning I was reading an article about the working conditions of people in the U.S. In, since um, the 20s, since the Great Depression. And so, of course, in 2008 we had this Great Recession in which there was a huge bailout of banks um, where our government gave trillions of dollars to the banks in order to make sure that they didn't fail. Um, which I think is interesting because then when we talk about individuals, there's often this um, blaming of their situation on themselves, but the conversation around the bank, we didn't blame the banks for what had happened. Um, in fact, we came to the rescue, right, with our tax dollars to say, well, we don't want these banks to fail. And so um, it's interesting how there is this idea that um, poor people have done something in which has created their own situation instead of looking at our social conditions in, in our country and across the world, of course, to, sh to see um, that, in fact, wages have stagnated, prices are going up, housing is not available, and people don't have what they need. Mm -hmm. And what's also so interesting is this huge wealth gap. Um, and while I think that redistribution isn't necessarily um, the solution. I do believe that in order to see the problem, we can see how much money, for instance, uh, Disney has made over these last years and look at the people who are working at Disney sleeping in their cars because they're not making enough money to pay for rent. So that is an important conversation that we'd love for you all um, and which we will all, we will be attending and which we hope many people will be attending. Um, and also in connection to that, we did want to give you an update ab 
about the prison strikes that are happening in the U.S. And so I wondered to make that connection, Becca. How do you see um, how do you see poverty as connected and the criminalization of poverty as connected to prisons? That's a great question. Um, I think that there's kind of this sense of in our society of what we don't see doesn't exist. Mm. And therefore, we not homelessness does not become an issue until it's visible mm. for the majority, for not the majority of people, for a, a group of people, mm -hmm. right? And typically those people who think of homelessness as an issue are people who have invested interests in keeping downtown beautiful mm -hmm. looking mm -hmm. right and so the conversation is often framed around safety and i think that's exactly the same conversation that happens around prisons that we are we need prisons in order to keep us safe even though we know that 85 percent of people in prison are nonviolent drug offenders people who have not actually caused harm to another person that's so interesting that you say that also because there is this notion of hiding our problems as well. And so in order to, say, keep a downtown beautiful, one has to hide the poverty which exists mm -hmm. around it or within it. And so there's a perfect place for that, which is maybe on the outskirts of a community in a prison. And one of the, mo one of the most like um, heart-wrenching things that I've heard from people who are currently living on the streets is that in prison they can get their needs met mm. better than they can living on the streets. Mm. And to me that's so backwards because prison is um, an institution that is set up to take away the freedom of people. So the fact that their material needs are met, healthcare, housing, and food are met better in prison in some cases. Mm. I don't think that's entirely true across the board. Um, but the problem is not homelessness. Mm. The problem for me is not criminals. The problem is why are people poor? Mm. And so how do we start to shape the conversations of what, um, what are the laws in our society and who do they benefit? What does it mean to be a criminal in our society and why are those people deemed criminals? And, um, what are the purposes of prisons? You know, and I think there is a sense that there is a disposable, uh, I think all across the world, there's this view of that, um, I would say, is endorsed by U.S. imperialism, that people are disposable, mm -hmm. that there are certain groups in our population who are disposable. And um, then what do we do with those dis disposable people? Well, in a quote unquote democracy, we need to be fair and just. So we're going to put them in prison. Right, and so moving towards the conversation around the prison strike, and you had made mention that people on the street are looking to get their needs met. In fact, the reason that this prison strike is happening is because people in prison don't have health care, they don't have um, legal recourse to their like being exploited mm -hmm. even. So people uh, in prison are making such low wages but they have no legal recourse to say, this is unjust, this is unfair. So I was wondering if you could talk to us and give us an update about what's been happening um, with the prison strike. Sure. 
So the prison strike was called, it began August 21st, which, which is significant because of, that was the death of George Jackson, who was seen as someone in prison who really brought people together across the divisions of race. And he was assassinated, and right? And he was assassinated, yes. He didn't just die in prison, no. but in fact, he was killed. And he was in prison for, I think, um, the acute, I don't even know if it was proven, but being accused of stealing something that was worth $11. He was in prison. How much? How much? I think it was seventy dollars. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, He was in prison for. Well, he was. Maybe it was eleven years that he was in prison. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's where I'm getting that number from. I know Mm -hmm. he was in solitary confinement for seven years. Mm -hmm. And um, I think next week on our show, we'll get a little bit more into um, detention in prisons, and maybe how solitary confinement really affects a human. But. so the prison strikes go from August 21st to September 9th, and they were uh, nationwide. I was trying to gather. I mean, I know that there's strikes happening in Washington, in California, in New- North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Louisiana, Colorado, New Mexico, just to name a few places. And there's also solidarity strikes that are happening in Canada. And um, it's in reaction to 10 people being massacred um, in Lee County. Uh, was it Alabama? Mm-hmm. Yep. Lee County Correctional Facility. Mm-hmm. And so prisoners are saying we demand um, essentially to be treated as human. And um, this is in commemoration of those who have been lost in prisons. In the last um, couple months, 10 people have died just in Mississippi alone being held in prison. And so the overcrowding of prison brought on by the increased mass incarceration, the lack of respect for human right, um, human life, I'm sorry, um, has led to men and women in both prisons and detention centers to demand, and I'll just name a few of the demands, immediate improvements to the conditions of prisons, an immediate end to prison slavery. The Prison um, Litigation Reform Act must be rescinded and I would suggest we're not going to go into these in detail mm-hmm. until um, two weeks from now when, when we're going to be kind of commemorating and sharing everything that happened in the strikes. But I'm reading these directly off of sawarmi.org. So it's S-A-W-A-R-I-M-I.org. And I think it's really important for us to know and that it's difficult and the media is not going to be presenting what is happening in prisons Mm -hmm. as we said those are places where society wants to hide the problems that capitalism has created and but there are work strikes happening there's sit-ins happening boycotts and hunger strikes and the last thing that i just wanted to mention is that there's kind of this um conversation that happens when you start talking about prison labor that oh at least people are making money or at least people have something to do with their time And I completely reject that argument on the point that these are human beings who are being exploited for the profit of somebody else. So their labor is being used to make a profit for corporations like Starbucks and McDonald's, as well as so many other universities use prison labor to to make uh, furniture in their apartments. And so 86 cents an hour is what we're talking about. We would not allow that except in prison. And that's not entirely true because we probably do allow that in a lot of other more hidden 
mm-hmm. um, like sweatshops that exist in this country as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but just thinking about that prisoners have to, s- have to spend a lot of money on their daily needs within prison. They have to buy food. They have to buy any notebooks or pens or paper or books that they want. They have to buy the basic necessities to clean themselves like soap and shampoo. Mm-hmm. And they also are making money to send to their families outside of prison. And so these people, if they are laboring, deserve to be paid um, well. And that's a big piece of the prison strike. They, the idea is that if you withhold labor, the prison will no longer function because a lot of these workers in prison are also doing the daily tasks to keep the prison functioning, like cooking food and cleaning. Okay, so we're going to go out with a song. Um, We hope you join us again um, and join the community on Wednesday at the Brooks Memorial Library and then on Thursday at the Root Social Justice Center at 6 p.m. for the film um, The Prison Prison in 12 Landscapes. So we're going to go out with a song by Bob Dylan, which is about George Jackson, whose um, assassination was commemorated on August 21st. Uh, he was um, killed at the age of 30. And so George was um, actually given, when he was accused of stealing $70 from a gas station, giving a one-to-life sentence, an indeterminate sentencing. And so every year that his parole was up, he was denied and he was denied. And so he ended up spending 11 years in prison from the age of 18, or I'm sorry, from the age of 19 till the age of 30. So this is Bob Dylan george jackson and and before we play that song i just wanted to read a quote of george jackson that's so relevant to our society today Mm. settle your quarrels come together understand the reality of our situation understand that fascism is already here that people are dying who could be saved that generations more will die or live poor butchered half lives if you fail to act do what must be done Discover your humanity and your love and revolution. Pass on the torch. Join us. Give up your life for the people. I woke up this morning. There were tears in my bed. Killed a man I really love. I shot him through the head. Lord, Lord, they cut George Jackson down. Lord, Lord, they laid him in the ground. Sent him off to prison. For a seven dollar rivalry They closed the door behind him And they threw away the key Lord, Lord, they cut George Jackson down Lord, Lord, they laid him in the ground From no one, he wouldn't bow down on deal. Authorities hated him because it was just too real. Lord, Lord, 
gonna cut Joe Jackson down Lord, Lord, he laid him in the ground They cursed him as they watched him from above But they were frightened of his power They were scared of his love Lord, Lord, so they cut George Jackson down Lord, Lord, they laid him in the ground Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program, as you know, that's devoted to the dimensions of our lives that go by the name economic. You know, jobs, incomes, debts, our own, our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolff. I've been a professor of economics all my adult life, and I hope that has prepared me to offer you these updates. I'm talking these days about capitalism as a system, and so I want to continue, as we did earlier, to talk about this as a system that has a set of contradictions, ways in which it undermines itself, because eventually these accumulate and then the system itself begins to totter. I'll leave it to you to decide in your own mind, as we all do, 